0: The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com.
1: Welcome to The Fabulous 413, I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll take a peek at global crisis through a fiction lens when we talk with Chuck Collins. He was the heir to the Oscar Mayer. <laughs> he was heir to Oscar Mayer, not the Oscar Mayer, but yes, that the Oscar Mayer, but abandoned that to pursue philanthropy, and we'll ask him all about what that entails too.
2: And hopefully we'll be joined later in the show by the legendary guitar player of the Saturday Night Live band, who's going to be giving a master class and a performance... In Belchertown, this weekend, G.E. Smith. But first...
0: To boldly go where no man has gone before. Some
2: more kitchen table astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid. Mr. Universe at your kitchen table in Amherst. A couple quick things. One, you went to go see Hassan Minaj at the Williamstown Theater Festival. We tried to get him on our show, and uh, we will be talking about some other things Williamstown Theater is doing, which is great. But how was Minaj? Minhaj? Uh,
3: it was great. Why? I mean, he should come to the show because there is now... A South Asian connection. So <laughs> I think. You can't, you can't play the South Asian card and get them on? You should totally do that because you say, you have a whole thing about South Asia, so come on in. So no, it was it was really wonderful. It was a small audience. I love Williamstown Theatre Festival because there are so many cool stuff that happens. So this was part of that. Comedian, of course. He was on
2: The Daily Show. He had his own show. That was amazing. And we will have the Williamstown Theatre Festival on later this week. So that's good. Another thing that's happening later this week, maybe, is a giant solar storm. Predicted for Thursday,
3: solar storms are what cause the northern lights to be seen, right? Okay, so this is the bias that we have to correct. It's it's the northern and southern lights. Ah, uh, okay, got okay, it. Okay, because we just <laughs> go like, hey, who cares what's happening in the...
2: Aurora Borealis, does Aurora, that cover it all?
3: That's exactly right. Uh-huh. So Aurora Borealis, so that's when particles from the sun, like protons, for example, uh, they get ejected, and people can tell if there is a lot of activity um, in the sun. So you can actually predict sometimes. And those charged particles, I mean, normally, they don't come to the Earth because of our magnetic field. We are protected. But right around from the poles, they enter. And then they interact with the atmosphere, and that's what produces these different colors. Those different colors represent the different types of atoms that are in our atmosphere. When there is a solar storm, you can actually see a lot more particles, and we can potentially see as south as here, but also down all the way down to New Mexico and Texas. I have seen them once in my life. I mean, I do want to go to Iceland or some other place. Field trip to Iceland, by the way. one four one three Iceland, I, love I think. It. Love it. I'm sure Bjork would be happy.
2: <laughs> I saw them once in Turner's Falls.
3: I saw them from downtown Northampton during Northampton Film Festival. Way back when there used to be a Northampton Film Festival. And it was, they were red in color. And it was like around 8.30 or 9. That's the one time I have seen, I would suggest there are some apps or some websites that track it uh, that can give you a little bit of warning, maybe, and try that. I mean, it's cool. I mean, it is really weird.
2: Yeah, and if you see weird green lights in the sky on Thursday or Friday, know that you're seeing the Northern Lights. When I saw them, I was like, what the hell is that? And, and, people, think,
3: like, <laughs> and people think that it's clouds. It's like, because I remember because uh, during the film festival back in uh, like in Northampton, I was showing people, I was like, look, these are Northern Lights. I like, no, no, these are clouds. I'm like, no, actually, do you see stars all around? Like, oh, yeah, okay. So, yes, it will be just sort of like, you know, wisps of different colors. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe, and- just maybe, this Thursday, Friday, you could see it. I hope so.
2: And call into to for yeah, if you see him, we definitely want to hear about it. Another thing that we won't see, but that astronomers have been seeing, that Einstein predicted over 100 years ago are gravitational waves.
3: Right. So, I mean, this is an amazing story. So Einstein's general theory of relativity, one way of thinking about gravity is that it is the bending of space and time. So our universe is made up of four dimensions, three dimensions of space and one of time. And Einstein's theory suggested that if you have any object that has mass would bend this space time and it is this bending that manifests itself that's how we see it as gravity now you've explained this to me
2: before in a way that has made it really concrete in my mind where if you imagine space time as a blanket and you put a ping pong ball on the blanket it's gonna make a little dip in space time if you put a bowling ball on the blanket it's gonna make a massive dip in space time and that is how the fabric
3: of space time kind of works That's exactly right. When objects move in there they create little bit of ripples. A smaller object creates very little ripples and so it was predicted that objects especially that are big they can lose energy that can be detectable as waves in space-time. Like if you dropped a
2: bowling ball in the blanket it would make a ripple along the blanket and we would be able to
3: maybe perceive that ripple in the blanket. There is a UMass connection uh, and there was a Nobel Prize that was given in 1993 to two physicists, Taylor and Hulse. Taylor was a professor here at UMass and his uh, graduate student. Uh, by the time they got the Nobel Prize, they were at Princeton so it always writes <laughs> down like, you know, Princeton <laughs> but hey,
2: come on! Started <laughs> at UMass Amherst!
3: And also they used Arecibo Observatory for their uh, for their observations. Which, which is the UMass Connecting Observatory, right? This is the one in Puerto Rico. Oh. Rest in peace. Uh, uh. It's no longer functioning. But what they discovered they found these dead stars called neutron stars they can also be pulsing and so they're called pulsars but it's a similar thing what they discovered in there was that their orbit was slightly decaying if you think in terms of newton's laws well two objects are in motion are orbiting each other and they should be orbiting forever but not if they are losing some energy which was shown but how are they losing it where is that energy going And gravitational waves so it was their prediction that sure enough, and that's why they got the Nobel Prize, they could actually show the orbits decay, But they did not see gravitational waves directly. And then in 2015, that's where people remember big results from LIGO, LIGO Observatory, which was designed to detect gravitational waves a couple of kilometers wide. And there are these very finely tuned lasers in there. And they can detect very tiny variations. And so and of course, it's very, very hard uh, to do because you have to take out all other kinds of interference and want to make sure that this was through gravitational Waves, and they detected for the first time gravitational waves which could be pointed to colliding black holes. When they collide, so you can imagine these very dense objects Two bowling balls. And when they're colliding, they are just producing this intense energy, which is going out in gravitational waves. And this is what we detected. So it was a stunning confirmation of general theory of relativity predicted by, again, from uh, from Einstein's theory. But just uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, a new announcement came up. And that was about the fact that astronomers have found gravitational waves from a different method. This is a different way of detecting gravitational waves, but also different types of gravitational waves. They call it the background hum of gravitational waves. What astronomers expected, again, as we said, all kinds of objects, when they move, uh, they should emit gravitational waves. But the waves could have different frequency, just like you have light or sound waves that have different frequencies. Ah! Or, um. Okay, so in the same way, you can have gravitational waves that can have short frequency. That's the kind that was detected by LIGO. Or really long frequency gravitational waves. It's just where the peaks and crests are of a wave. But you would need a much bigger detector. So if, you, if it is on the scale of kilometers, LIGO would detect it. That's what it detected in terms of for the black hole collisions. But astronomers were like, but you can have these supermassive black holes. We know that supermassive black holes exist in almost every large galaxy. Like Like the Milky Way, there are supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies that are much bigger, and we know galaxies collide. What kind of gravitational waves they would be producing, and it was expected that they would produce it on a much longer wavelength or lower frequency, that's what they would have a background hum. The problem was you needed a detector that is much bigger than LIGO. In fact, you needed a detector on the scale of tens or hundreds of light years. And so astronomers found a way to create that. How? That's where it gets really interesting because there are these millisecond pulsars. These are again, dead stars, but they're spinning really fast. And because they have high magnetic fields, they also send these pulses. Some of them can go over a hundred times in a second. Here is a second. And these objects that are about the size of New York City, have gone around about a hundred times or more. So they are actually really good for measuring time. And in fact, they are the best timekeepers that are natural. And for a while, we actually used, humans here on Earth, use these millisecond pulsars as timers. So what astronomers did, and there are multiple arrays. In the US also, there is one pulsar timing array, but there are also in Europe, in India, in Australia, and in China. They were all had these different pulsar timing array, and they looked at these pulsars. So the U.S. one looked at about 68 millisecond pulsars distributed over a few thousand light years across in the Milky Way galaxy. And then they looked at it over for 15 years. If their times with respect to each other have changed a little. And because they're very accurate, right? So they are, I mean, they are going in milliseconds, sort of like, you know, in terms of their pulses. And if there is a slight change, and because they are distributed across the galaxy, you can actually predict if a gravitational wave, if this disturbance in space-time has gone through, you can predict how each of the pulses from these different pulsars, of this array of pulsars, 68 pulsars, would change. So it's not just a change between one, it's the change across these 68 pulsars. Looking at a stadium, you see the
2: wave happening over one part of the stadium, the wave comes all the way around, and they use those 68 pulsars to see these gravitational waves and found out, what, that they're kind of constant, that they're there all the
3: time? There is this kind of waves that is a background hum. So the example that one of the astronomers uh, used, and I, I really liked it, that this is kind of like a background chorus. Um, But then the ones that LIGO detected, which are much higher frequency, it's like a sort of like, you know, a chirp. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for my vocals here.
1: (laughs) Soon, with last week having the hottest recorded temperatures on Earth on record in human history, we'll talk about a work of fiction about very real existing dreads in the not-too-much-distant future that ask us how we as humans should respond. We'll chat with Chuck Collins about his life and new novel. But, fingers crossed, up next, guitar
2: legend G.E. Smith, seminal sideman and band leader of Saturday Night Live, comes to Belchertown this weekend. i be on the show shortly. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
0: Back in the early 80s, I started with 16 rows of strawberries, which comprised about three quarters of an acre. That was my first uh, stab at uh, uh, farming business. You're doing a lot more than uh, 16 rows now. Yeah,
4: exactly.
2: (laughs) Time for our Local Heroes Spotlight with Jacob Nelson from CESA and John Burney, who's the farmer and owner at Meadowbrook Farm in East Longmeadow. I think when people think of East Longmeadow, farms aren't necessarily the first thing they think of, but your farm is maybe the largest farm we've talked to in the time that we've been doing this show. For sure. 400-ish acres? Yes. In East Longmeadow and spans into other parts to Hamden County, even parts of Northern Connecticut?
0: Yes. Yeah. We farm in about five different towns. Uh, East Longmeadow is our home base. We also farm in Hamden, Mass., Summers, Connecticut, Enfield, Connecticut, East Windsor, Connecticut. So we have to travel for quite a distance in order to get the uh, farmland. Yeah.
1: I don't think people necessarily realize that not all of that is like your farm specifically. Some of it is rented. What's the important uh, importance of having lands that you have have access to that aren't necessarily a part of your core
0: farm. And uh, that's a good question. Uh agricultural land in the vicinity is very um, scarce. Properties don't come up for sale that often, so you have to take what you can get, what you can use, and we often uh, uh, rent land in order to get the, uh, put together the 400 tillable acres.
2: That's an incredible amount of land, as we had mentioned. How many farmers are you working with to maintain that land?
0: Uh, Well, that varies depending on the season. We need a lot of hand labor when it comes to harvest time. Mm -hmm. So, at that time, a peak of maybe 30. Uh, employees and that'll be a little bit later
2: in the season, or is that already started?
0: No, we're we're harvesting now. We're harvesting uh cabbage, green squash, yellow squash. Uh, just started with some cucumbers. Uh, soon to come will be tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, and sweet corn.
2: How long has this farm been in existence, John?
0: Uh, I built the first greenhouse in 1990. When I was 12, I used to deliver papers, and I, I didn't grow up in a farm family. But for some reason, I just had an interest in agriculture since I was a little kid. So at 12 years old, delivering papers, I don't know if anyone remembers the old B&B market, but the owner of, um, of that market, which was right in the center of Nislong Meadow, was raising sheep and he was lambing out some sheep right in his garage. Yeah. So I was a kid that always had a million questions, so I'd ask him you know, all about the sheep, and he says, why, do you want a job? And I said, yes. He, uh, he taught me how to drive a tractor. That was my first job on a mini farm. After that, worked for a couple different places, and then I, um, uh, the, the home farm where the greenhouses are now, where my retail business is, was owned by a retired dairy farmer he had sold the cows in the 60s some of the older people would remember the name it was Han farm and he actually used to pedal milk for the individual wow. household. <laughs> wow. So I um I, I became friendly with him, and uh, he was up in his 80s, and I used to help him do tractor work when I was home from school on the weekends. And he never paid me, but he said, why don't you try raising some strawberries? And I think the reason was he didn't want to make the investment. I thought it was a good idea, but he <laughs> he didn't want to make the investment himself. So um, he was generous enough to let me use a piece of land. It was actually a piece of rented land that had a big utility pole in the center of it. And he didn't want to drive around the utility pole anymore. (laughs) So he says, you can use that little block of land there and you can use my equipment. I thought, okay. It was actually leased land from Western Mass Electric Company. And then he was good enough to put my name on the lease. So when he passed, that, that automatically... Uh, went in my name. That was the first farm that I purchased. But my point being, it's important to follow your passion. I wasn't raised in a farm family, always had an interest in agriculture, and I never thought that I'd be on the production side of agriculture. When I graduated college, I um, worked for farm credit banks, loaning money to other farmers. And I always thought I would be, I I didn't ever see a pathway to becoming a full-time farmer. I, I was farming uh, after college farming um uh, part time with a pick your own strawberry operation and we also picked a few berries for the local big y stores so our relationship with big Y goes back to the uh, early eighties then it got to the to the point was i had to decide whether I wanted to be a farmer or a banker mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so when uh and you chose farmer yeah so, I mean. let's see <laughs> nineteen nineteen <I> mean. <laughs> Eighty-nine. I uh, I quit the bank and became a full-time farmer, and never looked back.
1: The legend continues. Yeah, right. How many farms are left in East Longmeadow?
0: Full-time farms. Um,
1: Is it just you?
0: Well, there's uh, a Graziano Gardens which has some greenhouses.
1: You find that people in the area, like East Longmeadow and, and nearby, are finding your farmstead. Is, like, is it like a name that's been known and people just kind of pass it
0: on? I, I think there is some name recognition there. We have a, a loyal group of customers. Obviously, we're always looking for new customers. Mm-hmm.
1: And We hear you're doing pick your own blueberries, which is wonderful. Sorry, I love I <laughs> that like blueberries. That tone of voice, please. That's because my brain froze for a second. <laughs> because I was imagining the sweet goodness that is blueberries and then all all language stopped working for yeah, me. I know <laughs> oh <feeling>. yeah, <laughs> blueberries, which I, like, no I've, offense to any... Body, especially my mom who hates them, but I prefer blueberries to strawberries. Me too. They're my favorite berry. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. We're, I know
2: it's a controversial position to take. It is take, a very but...
5: controversial Not in this <laughs> room, <to take>. apparently. <laughs> yeah.
0: So where can we find yours, John? That was our latest venture. About three, four years ago, I purchased a uh, blueberry farm, which is virtually right around the corner from our farm stand. Uh, the property hadn't been maintained in the past uh, uh, five to 10 years, so we've done a lot of work as far as um, pruning and uh, and maintaining the bushes. So this will be our third fruiting year. Uh, with the blueberry farm.
1: Did you experience a bit of loss with the the May frost too, or did it mostly leave you unscathed?
0: No, we had some substantial loss in the blueberries, the early varieties. It was a very unusual situation with May 18th, uh, it got very cold. uh, So we did lose some of the early varieties, but the mid and late season varieties look very good and the average size looks better than last year.
2: We're speaking with John Burney from Meadowbrook Farm, a, a huge farm in East Longmeadow and beyond. Yeah. Jacob Nelson of CISA.
5: Yeah, John, you said pick your own blueberries are right around the corner from your farm stand. You want to tell us a little bit about that? And then I know that's also not the only place to get your produce. So
0: Right. Uh, we have a combination of retail and wholesale business. Big Y is one of our major customers and we go into Big Y every day. In addition, we go into the um, New England Produce Regional Market, which is located in Chelsea, Mass., and we have a truck going in there every day. How does that work? Uh, the regional market there is like a re-wholesaler. Mm-hmm. They'll sell to other farm stands or institutional business, uh, a lot of supermarket business.
2: How big a piece of the puzzle is that for your business? I'm sure it's great to have a more local connection with a big market like Big Y, but how big of a percentage is it business-wise for a 400-acre farm to be going into this regional market in Chelsea?
0: Dollar-wise, it might include uh, maybe 30%, 30 35% of our overall sales. But the reason why it's important is we have a lot of uh, different grades of produce. Uh, big Y in the supermarkets want number one produce, and mm-hmm. the, best, the best that we can pack, whereas, um, with any crop, you get some off-grades. Uh, in the case of peppers, you get a suntan pepper or medium-sized pepper. In the case of summer squash, you get medium squash, which is bigger than what the supermarket's like. So we need to have a home for our off-grade stuff. That's one of the big reasons why we like going into the uh, regional market in Boston. Because they'll find a
2: place to place it. Correct.
5: There's a lot of logistics that go into this, but I, I think one of the key things that I'm reminded of in this conversation is just how important it is to have local farms that are as big as you are and are able to wholesale to grocery stores. As we're growing the local agricultural movement and the local agricultural economy, there's room for farms of all sizes, Uh, but it's really important to have farms as big as yours that are growing as much as you are and can sell it at at price points and at volumes so they can show up in the shelves because that's getting local food out to many, many more communities kind of all in one fell swoop than some other smaller farms farms are able to and that's that's one of the superpowers of a farm like Meadowbrook Farm. and Not I know to
1: mention like lessening the carbon footprints of those supermarkets. If you can get all that stuff locally, it yeah. means that you don't have to fly it out or have it trucked out to you right. so far. Like it benefits everybody by being able to get it here.
5: Yeah, sure. And you're selling right into the kind of the distribution system that already exists. And that's that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, we, we have started out the conversation by saying East Long Meadows not really known as a farming town, but that hasn't always been the case. It was a farming town at one time. People need to recognize the importance of maintaining a viable local agriculture, or else there is going to be nothing left.
2: And Um, when you set up shop in these new farm locations uh, and pick up more pieces of land, that is preserving it for agriculture as opposed to it beginning a condo complex or something.
0: Exactly. That's the the, uh, best long-term way of preserving land is having a business model where you can farm the land profitably, then it will take care of itself. Uh, but right now, we're getting squeezed by solar farms, development, things like that, which lessens the amount of tillable land in the area.
2: Yeah, there's been an interesting debate across the country, but in Western Mass, in particular, in certain locations about wanting to put on large-scale solar in land that could be tillable, but... Uh, uh, Right. My
0: my personal opinion on that is, of course, it's biased. I'm a farmer, but why take good farmland and put solar panels on good farmland? There's plenty of wooded property, steep property, property that doesn't lend itself to... isn't considered prime farmland, and I I think that's where the uh, solar farm should be looking.
2: Perhaps every flat roof in Springfield (laughs) could have a solar farm on it.
0: (laughs) Like
1: If if you could maybe start with allowing some of the historical buildings in the historical districts to have (laughs) solar, I'm just saying as someone who lives there and has realized that only just now have they started allowing the houses to have solar because of outdated regulation, we could do that too. But that's neither here nor there. That's an entirely (laughs) different conversation.
2: We're speaking with John Burney, the farmer and owner of Meadowbrook Farm based in East Longmeadow, and Jacob Nelson of CESA, the local hero folks. John, you mentioned... 400 acres, 30-ish employees during harvest season. And we keep hearing about employee shortages in all sorts of different business models. Has it been hard for you to find people to come and be part of the harvest? And where are the folks that are working on your farm coming from?
0: Yeah, m- most of the labor force is um, uh, coming out of the Springfield area. It is difficult to find a consistent labor force. We have a good nucleus of people that have been with us a long time that do an excellent job. But as I mentioned earlier, during harvest season, we have to pick up the extra people. Time will tell on this season how we do at that. Mm.
5: And John, you mentioned in addition to people that have been working with you a long time in the fields, there's people that have been working with you for a long time at the farm stand.
0: Our our business is uh, maybe a third uh, retail business where we sell the products retail at the farm. And uh, there's one key employee that's been with me for a long time that has been very instrumental in building that retail business. Everyone knows her as Veronica or or Ronnie. She knows most of the customers by name and uh, has been a tremendous asset in building the retail business.
2: It's huge and important to have those people committed to making this sort of thing be successful and being a big pivotal part of the community. John Burney, the farmer and owner of Meadowbrook farm in East Long Meadow. Thanks so much for joining us. And Jacob Nelson of CISA, the local hero. Folks, you can find out more about all of our local hero farmers in the four counties, or at least three. Go to buylocalfood.org.
1: We know a lot of our farm friends in the area were flooded out yesterday. Tomorrow, we'll ask the governor what her office and the new Office of Rural Development can do to help those farmers out. Got a
2: question for the governor? The Fab 413 at NEPM.org or text 1-800-639-9120.
1: Up next, a young linguist named Ren Wood has been studying the accents of people of Chicopee during the Gilded Age, and we'll talk with them about some of the things you might have heard then and may still
4: hear now.
2: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
5: Yeah.
0: Tell me
5: over and over and over
2: Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're joined by Chuck Collins, who very patiently waited with us through that G.E. Smith conversation. It seems like a he had pleasure. a good time. A pleasure. <laughs> I got goosebumps
6: hearing
1: him talk about Al Green
2: and oh, yeah. sit-in
6: sessions, and maybe it's the air conditioning in the studio.
2: <laughs> but,
1: uh, it's a little of both. They're not mutually exclusive.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was a real goosebump. <laughs> Chuck (laughs) Collins is the director of the program on inequality and the common good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org. He's written books like The Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions. He also authored the popular book Born on Third Base. And the new book is a novel of sorts. You'll be at the Odyssey in South Hadley to talk about it tomorrow. It's called Altar to an Erupting Sun. How do you describe this? Because there's a lot of historical fiction that has to do with Western Massachusetts in this book, but yet it's still described as a novel. Chuck? Well, it is a a novel. It is a work of fiction, but it draws on
6: real people that lived in 413, that lived in Western Mass, mostly Franklin County. Some of which still live. Some Mm -hmm. of which are still with us. Uh, Juanita Nelson, though, we're we're honoring her 100th birthday this summer. Uh, Sam Lovejoy, still living in Montague toppled the tower that sort of launched the modern anti-nuclear power movement. Um, so the, I wanted to lift up, uh, put them on the altar, if you will, some of these real stories that shaped our communities and shaped our social movements that that really make a difference right now.
1: Altar creation is a really important plot point throughout the whole book. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that actually means to create an altar? Like it shows up a bunch. Yes,
6: yes. Uh, The main character, a fictional woman named Ray Kelleher, is an altar builder. She learned about altars from people who built altars in Vietnam and and Central America, sort of altars of remembrance, honoring ancestors. In this case, for me, this book is an altar to real people, to social movements. But it's also sort of how do we spiritually prepare ourselves for a disrupted future? And my main character, Ray, would say, Part of what we need to do is draw on our ancestors, draw on those who've come before us, who faced hardship
2: before, as a way to face the future together. In some ways, it's a greatest hits collection of all of the movements that the, a lot of people in the Valley were supported. the Clamshell Alliance that was very anti-nuclear. As you mentioned, Sam Lovejoy, who if people aren't familiar with that story, is a character in the book, and his story is chronicled in the book and interwoven with one of the, the fictional characters. If people aren't familiar with that actual story... Tell us a little bit about Sam Lovejoy and his story. Well, first, uh, you know,
6: part of my hope in this novel is is people will want to learn more about those stories. So I've tried to tell the story of Sam, who there was a plan to build a nuclear power plant right on the plains of Montague. It was going to suck up all the water out of the Connecticut River. It was a really bad idea. And Sam, as part of trying to stop it and trying to be part of an organizing effort, actually did an act of civil disobedience, uh, property destruction, you could say. He clipped a cable that held up a weather tower that was kind of pre, pre-power pre plant. They had a weather tower to kind of monitor the, where the nuclear radiation would go if they had an accident or something. Anyway, then he turned himself in. He was charged with destruction of property. He went to court. Howard Zinn came and testified as a historian about why civil disobedience matters, other experts, and he was eventually acquitted on a technicality. But it's a really important story because it sort of launched the modern
2: anti-nuclear power movement in 1973-74. And it was this act of civil disobedience and then the thus turning themselves in that made it a really powerful and important thing. Another character that's real that isn't in the book proper but is referenced quite a bit is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Can you talk about who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was and why he is an important, pivotal piece throughout the course of the novel?
6: Yeah, my main character, Ray Kelleher, is a is a bookworm. You know, she's she's constantly soaking up information. So she's reading the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's kind of a pacifist German theologian, who makes the decision to join a plot, a failed plot to assassinate Hitler, and uh, in, and is executed for that. And in a way, Ray feels that we are in a Bonhoeffer moment in terms of the to fight to defend the earth, that we're up against powerful fossil fuel corporations and others. And she feel, feels at, at the end of her life called to engage in a, in a shocking act, which is not a spoiler alert. That's really it how the book begins. <laughs> yeah. So Ray takes the life and her own life. You know, she's terminally ill. She's facing the end of life months to live, she decides to take out the CEO of a fossil fuel company. So this is the shocking beginning.
2: The story is really like what shaped her and what impact did that have? Right. We're speaking with Chuck Collins, who is the author of a new quote unquote novel, Alter to an Erupting Sun. I really think it's historical fiction in a lot of ways. But this point, the Bonhoeffer point, the um, activism versus terrorism sort of point is a is a through line throughout the whole novel. And so many of the people that you reference that are true in the novel would consider themselves pacifists. Wally Nelson, who with his wife Juanita lived on Woolman Hill in Deerfield, was opposing World War II. He went to jail because he would not be a part of fighting in any way or in any capacity, even in the United States, during World War II. So where do you come out when you're wrestling with this issue in fiction in regards to by any means necessary, as some say.
6: Yeah, I I think that um, part of this is a fictional exploration because I've heard primarily women of a certain age say, you know, if I was terminally ill, I would risk it all or I would take this bold action. Or even yesterday, walking in the woods, I was with a 70-year-old woman who was with a group of all these children, and she says, if I encounter a bear, I'm going to go straight to the bear. I'm going to save the children. There's sort of this powerful desire to to protect uh, ourselves and our children and the planet. So so in this case, Ray is 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 formed by these deep Wally and Winita Nelson, deep pacifist understandings, but she's kind of brought to the brink by the current moment we're in, this facing the impossible news of of ecological disruption and destruction. So she's moved you know, where I stand is, I think it's not a good idea. I don't think people should kill each other. Uh, I think, uh, um, but it's a shocking act, in a sense, to to get us all to think, well, what's, what does bold action look like in this moment? What am I called to do uh, to save our one and only planet Earth?
1: It's not just climate issues in the book, though. It's humanitarian issues, and then the the combination or the meeting of both of those, one of the important points earlier on without revealing too too much is that Ray your main character goes to Nicaragua and ends up being basically that being a shield early on and it's interesting that there's a shift between using her life as shield and using her death as shield as this book goes along. And you talk about how or why, well, I, I don't know why we should talk about why those two things connect, because clearly they have to connect. We're all humans and we experience the climate. <laughs> so those issues should be related. But it's interesting, the journey that she goes uh, through, because I don't think... Anywhere else she goes that deep into humanitarian issues, it ends up being more climate, like more more environmental as opposed to yeah. direct personal conflicts. You know, I think there were a lot of people from
6: 413 who, during the 1980s, went to Central America. They went to Nicaragua to, you know, pick coffee or cotton and stand against U.S. invasion. They went to El Salvador, and they were formed by that. And you're right. This is so important in, in Ray Kelleher, my fictional Ray Kelleher character. She doesn't spend a lot of time in Central America, but it, it gives her a global picture. It gives her kind of an understanding of U.S. foreign policy, colonialism, and where the U.S. kind of fits into the global consumption picture. And that really sticks with her. And so, and I, th- and I like what you said, Khalees, this is not a book about climate. It, it, it's looking at the, the intersection of human rights... Uh, inequality, racism, and and climate disruption. These are all the things that Ray Kelleher, my character,
2: thinks about and is formed by her elders. Really led her down that path. And while Ray Kelleher is fictional, although there are a couple people that I was wondering if they're based <laughs> on largely. A lot of the people that she encounters at the Montague Farm or at Woman Hill are not fictional. And they really lived this for decades. As we mentioned, Wally Nelson was uh, an anti-war protester for World War I because he was so committed to nonviolence and non-cooperation. Uh, they were also involved in the civil rights struggle and were guiding lights in some ways to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and helping him connect the dots between civil rights and racism and anti war And are you familiar with that kind of connection between them?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thread,
2: and Ray, you know,
6: actually, personally, I got to live down the road from Wally and Juanita Nelson, I got I picked a lot of vegetables and hung out at their kitchen table. They really were personally helpful to me and sort of understanding wealth and power and everything. So, uh, so that they, they were, you know, they were early, if you go to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, and you walk right into the the Lorraine Hotel lobby, there's a picture of Wally Nelson holding a suitcase getting on one of the Freedom Rides. So that's the thread that – that's a thread to the connection to here to
2: 413. And Juanita Nelson outlived Wally. I never got to know Wally, but Juanita lived on Woman Hill. My kids were lucky enough to go up there and help her pump water from her well. She lived completely off the grid. It's all connected to the Trap Rock Peace Center uh, that's uh, connected with the Woman Hill. And in your book, which is technically a novel, there is a poem wa- by Juanita Nelson about being and living off the grid. And uh, I have excerpts of that poem that I got a chance to record with her before she passed away. Can you play Juanita One, Betsy?
4: Well, I went out to the country to live a simple life, get away from all that concrete and avoid some of that strife, Get off the backs of poor folks. Stop supporting Uncle Sam and all that stuff he's putting down like bombing Vietnam. Oh, but it ain't easy, especially on a chilly night, when I beat it to the outhouse with my trusty dim flashlight. The seat is absolutely frigid. Not a BTU of heat. That's when I think the simple life is, not for us, elite. Because let me tell you something, though it may not be good news, if some folks win, you better know somebody's got to lose. So I guess I'll have to cast my lot with those who are opting out, and even though on freezing nights I will have my nagging doubts, long as I talk the line I do and spout my way-out views, I'll keep on using the outhouse and singing the outhouse blues. That is the voice <laughs> of Juanita
2: Nelson reading one of the poems she wrote, which is quoted in the new book, Alter to the Erupting Sun, by Chuck Collins. Uh, Juanita, as, in addition, she is the founder of the Greenfield Farmers Market, which was one of the first farmers markets in the area, founder of the uh, Indoor Farmers Market the, in the wintertime. She's founder of the Free Harvest Supper. And she you can hear from even the poem, she's connected all these dots. Nope, she's an important elder. And actually, we're celebrating her 100th birthday, August
6: 17th to the 20th at Walman Hill. We're going to have a 100th birthday party, a little conference symposium on Juanita. But yeah, I love that line. Not a BTU of heat yeah. in that <laughs> toilet seat. <laughs> Anybody who's left, used in the outhouse, knows exactly what she's talking about. Makes you question your commitment. I remember my oldest, my,
2: my oldest son, Atticus, who's now uh, 18 and a half. He said, we got to get Grandma Anita a sink thinking that it wasn't the pumping and the well that that was causing the water. If we only just got her a sink, then she'd be able to have running water in her house. But these are the kind of people that you're chronicling in this fiction, but it's it's historical fiction. It goes forward into the future, too. And we'll go forward into the future, into a break. And we'll talk a little bit about your past, Chuck, because I think your story is fascinating, too. Chuck Collins will be at the Odyssey in South Hadley tomorrow talking about his book, Alter to an Erupting Sun. You're listening to The Fabulous
1: 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are here with author and activist Chuck Collins and his new book, "Alter to an Erupting Sun. Chuck's going to be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley tomorrow night, July 10th at 7 p.m. But his life is just as fascinating as the book. So we're going to ask him about that now. And Chuck, some of the people you talk about in the book were inspirational
2: for you making this decision. But you were the heir to the Oscar Mayer Wiener fortune. No baloney. <laughs> <laughs> does it come with a mobile?
1: oh you no! Know, only... you
2: gotta look out your window man it's parked
1: <gasps> in the back oh my word wait no. are you the one who gives like so i've seen the listing for the job posting because you get when you get to drive the mobile, you get to drive it for a year and it's kind <laughs> it, of awesome it, it is kind of awesome
6: <laughs> how could you give that up chuck i know those are called the hot doggers yeah the, are they I, I guess through
2: i couldn't uh through nepotism get a get the job oh yeah to give you a weenie whistle, at least. I have a lifetime supply, though. Okay, good. Man, that's like. Tell us about your decision, though, to walk away from this huge fortune and what you've done with it. Because you've chronicled it in all this book. I'm not prying into your private life. No, um, <laughs> all's fair. Um, the, you know,
6: actually, the connection to Juanita Nelson is really interesting because Juanita is somebody I went to and said, "Look, I have, you know, I have this inheritance. I, I, I have this inherited wealth. I'm from the Oscar Mayer family." One of her great lines was. Well, you know, it's not a terminal condition. <laughs> <laughs> you can do something about that. You know, it's not like whiteness. You know, you're white. You know, but you know, with wealth, you could say, well, you can give that away. Yeah. She actually, and, and she wasn't said, say, She wasn't saying that in a cavalier way. She was saying, you really care about justice. One of her ideas of nonviolence was, you know, you want to you want to live in a better world. You don't want to have war start looking at your own life and, and take your boot off of other people. I don't know. That's the kind of way she... So she she was part of that. So when I when I learned that I could get control over the money, I, I gave it away to a number of foundations. You know, it's it was, it was much less risky than moral and ethical decisions that a lot of other people make in the world mm-hmm. to not work in a weapons manufacturing company or stop working at a gun manufacturer, whatever. People make Take greater risks. It did launch me on my way. It sort of opened up the next door and next chapter of my life.
2: Um, and I don't have any regrets about it. My kids
6: might. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and what some of those next chapters include is being very critical of hyperwealth, the wealth hoarders, how billionaires pay millions to hide trillions. Is a book that you've written, and you have talked with other millionaires about why this is not a great direction to continue going in this country and beyond.
6: Yeah, I mean, partly leveraging, I guess, the privilege, of, you know, winning the lottery at birth. I have understand the system of how the ultra rich hire these professionals to hide their money. So I wrote a book about that, and and a lot of them are coming out of the woodwork and becoming whistleblowers and talking about the trillions of dollars that are being hidden trusts in South Dakota and Nevada. So yeah, I'm interested in in. Uh, disrupting this system of concentrated wealth and power which is you know really wrecking our society
1: doing so like what was working with bill gates senior like in that case because that seems like it, an interesting parallel
6: <laughs> yeah that, that was just a lucky stumble i was working on an effort to try to keep the inheritance tax the estate tax from being abolished and i got a call from bill gates just saying bill gates F- senior the father of the founder of microsoft saying how can I help your effort? I'm totally with you. And I'm like, oh, stay cool. <laughs> uh, I got a few ideas. So anyway, yeah. So he, he was to- true to his word. He, he, was, he and I campaigned, met with senators, wrote articles, wrote a book defending taxes on big inheritances. Not on, you know, we're talking about people with tens of millions of dollars should pay an inheritance tax. So he was he's a, he's a wonderful guy. What okay. does Bill
2: Gates Jr. think about his dad working with you on this sort of thing? He
6: was, he was very supportive. It's not his thing. He's, he's a little more geeky and techno, you know, but Bill Gates Sr. was like Mr. Civic. You know, he was like, you know, if you're this lucky, you have this wealth, you should pay a tax so that it's an economic
2: opportunity recycling program. So somebody else that didn't have the opportunity you have should have the same opportunity. Which is interesting because a lot of the ultra wealthy, including Bill Gates, want to do things like Davos, where they're going to say, we as the as the rich are going to make decisions for the world for the better. And some of those have been great. But they're no, there's no democratic governance over those sort of things.
1: I mean, if it's decisions about what you're going to do with your money to make the world better, then sure, because it's your money and you should be giving it to make the world better. But if we're talking about actual ruling, that there are words for that in political science. Well,
6: actually, even philanthropy... You know, We, the taxpayers, chip in a huge amount of lost tax revenue to give these billionaires the private power to make decisions over their money. Frankly, I'd rather tax the
2: billionaires so that we can, as a society, democratically decide how to invest those funds. We're That's speak- my view. We're speaking with Chuck Collins, who in his day job is the director of the program on inequality and the common good, but also has a book out called Alter to an Erupting Sun. It's fiction. It goes forward into the future, but it also really I think in a way that if you love the activist nature of large parts of Western mass, most of it in the last hundred years, at least, is chronicled uh, in this book. It's kind One of, of a love letter to it. I think so, too. One of the things that uh, both the Nelsons, Wally and Juanita and Randy Keeler, who shows up in this book, do is war tax resist. Is there a counter to the um, ultra rich getting paying their fair share versus breaking the law by not paying your taxes? Randy Keeler you know, was the threat of losing his house for not paying taxes because he was trying to do it to resist war. Is there a parallel between those two things? There there is. I mean, I think that we have this problem, which
6: is because of the power of the military industrial complex, they've kind of warped our political system. So, so much of our tax dollars go to weapons. Um, At the same time, I think we should have a tax system where the ultra wealthy pay their fair share and that we have a better democratic, over, dem, democratic oversight of how those tax dollars are used. So to me, there's a connection. We have to deal with the power of the military, and we have to have a fair tax system. Um, you know, One of the things that's connected to my novel is the power of the fossil fuel industry is part of this concentrated power. They use their wealth and power to block the alternatives. they you know we we all think oh we're all responsible for climate change right particularly if you live in the northern hemisphere middle class affluent classes but the reality is this fossil fuel industry has locked us on to this co- collision course
1: and that's that's part of the the challenge in to this moment to like shifting the focus from them onto us so that we feel more responsible for taking care of it when we in fact have not nearly as much impact as we are being led to believe but the last question i want to ask you is where are the good swimming holes in western mass oh i'm not going to tell you i'll 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 personally whisper to you (laughs) Um,
6: but you know i live off the green river we got like six there's the west river Western Mass of course, you know, there's a couple. I wouldn't go out today. Yes. Oh, no. I just drove no, down there. No, there's there.
2: flooding. Be careful. Oh my out god, there. it's
6: like black churning, you know, brown. <laughs> Always
2: wait till 24 hours after a large storm to go I would into the river. To yeah. Say 48 today. 48 after
6: this one, yeah. But yeah, there's some great swimming holes up there.
2: My last question for you, Chuck Collins. You'll be at The Odyssey tomorrow with Alter to Interrupting Sun, a novel. Why do this as a novel? Why go into the future with it? Why not just tell the history, the activist history of Western Mass?
6: I find, for me, novels are like a gateway to wanting to learn history. So, historical fiction gets me interested in the real history, learning more. Uh, and then there's this tradition, uh, you know, Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler. There, we have to think about how how we're going to survive the next ten years, how we're going to, how humanity is going to turn the corner. That's an act of fiction right now. But in my case, it's not a zombie fiction or a, it's not dystopian. It's like Here's Western Mass, 413, Southern Vermont starts to turn the corner toward a more sustainable community and and response. So that's part of the vision. So fiction is an opportunity to open up and offer
2: visions. Chuck Collins, author, activist, who'll be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley tomorrow with his book Altar to an Erupting Sun. Thank you so much for joining us, Chuck. Thank you, Khalees. Thank you, Monty. Lovely being with you. Ah,
1: Tuesday on the Fabulous 413, the shift in how we consume music is an interesting tale.
2: One that gets told in John Dugan's new book, The Life, Death, and Afterlife of the Record Store, a global history. We'll chat with the author and take him to one of our local
1: record stores, Platterpuss Records in East Hampton. How we consume language is neat, too. We'll discover the evolution of speaking accents in Chicopee with budding linguist Ren Wood. Our director is Tony. We want the names done. Our engineer is Betsy's Shiny new, smaller, carbon footprint, Lankdo. She's got an
2: electric car. <laughs> Our technical team is Bart, Printer Woes Rankin, Kara Kidnapped by Naptown Foster, and Punk Rude Boy Dubay.
1: Thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live Band, Barry McGuire, Bruce Coburn, Gil Scott-Heron, and Brian Jackson, the Pixies, Star Trek, Bjork, and Aaron and I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow
2: in the Fabulous 413.